Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures, and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like rains that fall on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish, and peace abound till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him, all nations serve him. For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually and blessings invoked for him all the day. May there be abundance of grain in the land on the tops of the mountains. May it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon. And may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. This is God's word. Uh, it's my pleasure and joy to invite uh, Jonathan to, to come up. I'm going to uh, maybe like to welcome Jonathan as he comes up. So I first got to know Jonathan uh, when, when, while we were living in D.C., where we were church members together, and afterwards Jonathan was one of the elders of the church, uh, or he is still one of the elders of the church that uh, Claire and I were, were members of in D.C. Uh, so it's a joy having you here with us. Thank you, brother, for coming to serve us well uh, in the Word. Looking forward to hearing from you. Thank you. Uh, tell us uh, what, what brings you to this part of the world. I understand it's your first time in Asia, so far east. Uh, this far east, I've been to Uzbekistan before, that's Far east as I'd been, um, I was invited to teach a seminary class, a Doctrine of the Church class at Malaysia Baptist Seminary in Kuala Lumpur. I spent all last week teaching that, doing a conference there in KL, and now I'm here. Great. So good to have you with us. Thank you, brother. And uh, you are a lay elder of Capitol Hill Baptist Church. That's right. And your full-time job is uh, your editorial director with Nine Marks. That's right. You can tell us a bit about Nine Marks and what your role there is and what the ministry does. Nine Marks is a ministry aimed at church leaders when we talk about how to build healthy churches. Go to ninemarks.org to learn more. Um, um, yeah, so I, I write, I edit other people's writings, books, articles, and speak at events like the one tomorrow. Uh, I'm primarily aimed at church leaders, but Christians generally, about what the Bible says about being the church. So, what is a healthy church? A church, <laughs> a healthy church is one that displays the glory of God. One that displays the righteousness and love and justice of, of God by being obedient to his word. Mm. Great, amen. 
Can we just pray for you before you serve us? Thank you. Yes, please. Dear Father, we pray for Jonathan. We pray that you strengthen him as he brings God's word to us. We pray that you strengthen us as well. Help us to have ears to hear. Help us to have soft hearts to your truth. We pray that that there may be much fruit uh, during our time together. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, brother. Uh, Friends, thank you for receiving me. It is a privilege and honor to be with you, to bring God's word with you, to bring God's word to you. Uh, Greetings from Capitol Hill Baptist Church as well, my own congregation. It is always a joy for me to travel abroad and spend time with other saints because I quickly understand or I quickly enjoy the fellowship that we share in the gospel. Uh, When you travel overseas, you'll quickly feel cultural distance from people. But when you're Christians together, it's like you can immediately, I find, you immediately recognize something in common with them, right? That knowledge of the gospel that we share. And I often feel like I have more in common with those of you who are believers than I do with non-Christian Americans, now, depending, you know, we sit down and have a meal together and what you decide to eat and what I decide to eat, then we might not feel that sameness. We might feel that difference. But when we begin to talk about our hearts and what our hearts believe in and share, well, then we be like, yes, we're, we're one in Christ. And so it's always a joy for me um, to, to spend time abroad with, with fellow believers. Um, but speaking of those cultural distances, will you permit me to start with an American illustration Is that okay? How many of you have heard of Michael Jordan? Many of, maybe most of you? Probably the greatest basketball player, at least in America. Maybe you know other better basketball players, you don't, around the world. Um, But he played in the 1980s and the 1990s when I was in high school and in college, and so he kind of stands out in my memory as like one of the greatest heroes ever, right? He's the one we grew up with and we all rooted for. He, he won six championships uh, in the U.S., five most valuable player awards. Uh, he went to the All-Star Game 14 times. He had two gold medals at the Olympics. Remarkable athlete by any stretch of the imagination. One of the greatest, you might say, in the 20th century, at least from from the American side of the pond. Well, on the occasion of his 50th birthday a couple of years ago, there was a number of articles on Michael Jordan reflecting on his amazing career and reflecting on his life post-basketball. One article, for instance, talked about Jordan's, quote, insatiable drive to prove himself that propelled Jordan to the pinnacle of the sporting world. Uh, Another article gave an update on his life post-basketball. It said, Jordan might have stopped playing basketball, but the rage is still there. The fire remains. And it went on to describe all the things he'd continue to do. He, he has his own clothesline, his own shoe line. He has a partnership with Mikey, Nike worth millions, hundreds even of millions of dollars. He owns a professional basketball team, 
a restaurant, and more. In fact, he has, he has a company just to manage all the things he still has going on. And he gives all the main employees of his company a nickname. They all go by a certain nickname. There's one called Venom. There's Butler. There's Harmony. Do you know what Jordan's own nickname for himself is? Yahweh. You know what Yahweh means? It's the Hebrew word for God. Uh, Jordan himself admits, my ego is so big now, I just expect certain things. Uh, An article observes, Jordan is used to being the most important person in every room he enters. And going a step further, in the life of everyone he ever meets, people cater to his every whim. And so one author, this one a Christian, called him a wannabe Yahweh. Of course, Jordan is not the only wannabe Yahweh that I know. Uh, I remember, here's another American reference. You have to be patient with me. I'm, my supply is only so deep. I remember Jerry Seinfeld on a typically humorous note, observing, all men kind of think of themselves like low-level superheroes in their own world. And then he says to the women in the audience, I'm not even supposed to be telling you this, but when men are growing up reading about Batman and Spider-Man and Superman, these are not fantasies, these are options. This is the deep inner secret truth of the male mind. Well, it's true of all of us, isn't it? We are wannabe Yahwehs. We are wannabe superheroes. We are wannabe beauty queens. I think of the line in the Russian novel Anna Karenina, Tolstoy's novel Anna Karenina, in which the narrator says about the 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 beautiful, enchanting, but very fallen Anna, quote, Anna had unconsciously the whole evening done her utmost to arouse in Levin, this other character named Levin, to to arouse in Levin a feeling of love. As of late, she had fallen into doing with all young men. And she knew she had attained her aim, yet as soon as she was out of the room, she had ceased to think of him. So here is this beautiful woman. She goes into rooms, and she wants all the men to fall in love with her, and then she walks out of the room and completely forgets about him. I've begun with several examples of this because I think, I propose, we are all want to be Yahweh's, Wanna be superheroes, wanna be beauty queens. As sons and daughters of Adam and Eve who cast off God's rule, this is simply who we are. Well, Eugene just read for us Psalm 72. 
continue to look there. I'm, I'm going to work our way through it. I, I was reading it a several little while ago, and, and what struck me is how counterintuitive. Look at look for instance it's verse 15. Long may he live, may gold from Sheba be given him, may people ever pray for him and bless him all day long. And verse 17. May his name endure forever. May it continue as long as the sun. All nations will be blessed through him and they call him blessed. You can't be a wannabe Yahweh, a wannabe superhero, a wannabe beauty queen, and, and say something like this, right? You can't say, your heart won't say, I want him to live long. Don't give me gold, give him gold. D- don't build me a big platform and say good things about me. I, I want you all to look at him. Build a platform for him. And that's the point of the psalm. It's a prayer and petition for the prosperity of the Lord's anointed king. It's a prayer and petition for the prosperity of the Lord's anointed king. The psalmist wants to see this king's rule extended, expanded, furthered, blessed. And as I was reading this a little while back, it, it struck me, is that what my heart wants? That I, I, I really want someone else's fame and glory to be expanded, furthered, blessed? Like I said, that's hard to do when you're a wannabe Yahweh, when you're a wannabe superhero, when you're a wannabe beauty queen. Give him the rewards. Give him the praise. Well, that's the challenge of this psalm this morning. Uh, It can actually help our hearts as we reflect on it. That's my prayer for us as we reflect together on this psalm. It will help our hearts move from being wannabe Yahwehs and superheroes to desiring the fame of Jesus Christ in his rule. By the way, that, that's who this psalm is about. You knew that, right? Spoiler alert. The psalm is about Jesus. In its immediate context, yes, it's about an ancient Near Eastern king, but the exalted language of an everlasting dominion points us to the true king, just like the rest of Scripture storyline does. Look at verse 17 again. May his name endure forever. We're talking about Jesus' name, Jesus' reputation, Jesus' glory, okay? That's who this psalm is about. Let's divide it into five sections, and I'm going to give each section a label that I think describes what the psalm is calling our hearts to do in response. So it's like if we were to put this psalm on like clothes, if we were to put it in our hearts and mouths, what would our hearts be doing? Well, first, verses 1 to 4, we would pray for the king's righteousness and justice. Verses 1 to 4, pray for the king's righteousness 
and justice. Look, look at the first word, at least if you're looking at the NIESV, endow. Our hearts should be praying that God would give, endow these things. Endow the king with just, your justice, O God. The royal son with your righteousness. He will judge your, peoples in, your people in righteousness, your afflicted ones with justice. So the king here must conform to God's standard of righteousness and justice. There is no other brand of righteousness and justice for people who don't happen to believe in God. There is only one brand, only one justice and righteousness. It doesn't change. So you know what it's like when a colleague or a spouse or children make you angry and you feel that impulse for justice... Well, is your sense in those moments, is your sense of justice lined up with God's justice, God's righteousness? Because the only true justice, the only true righteousness is God's justice, God's righteousness. Well, what does the rule of the just and righteous King Jesus look like? Well, verse 3, the mountains will bring prosperity to the people, the hills, the fruit of righteousness. So we we see that prosperity grows in the soil of righteousness. It's the fruit of righteousness, this prosperity. And then verse 4, we read, He will defend the afflicted, or the, the poor you might have in your translation. He will defend the afflicted among the people and save the children of the needy. He will crush the oppressor. So, justice involves crushing Wrongful oppression, giving someone their just desserts. But justice also seems to be about defending the afflicted and the poor and saving the needy and the children of the needy, the doubly helpless. So justice is not only crushing the wrong, it's lifting up those who have been Wrong. It, it, it balances imbalances is what justice do, does. So, friend, just stop for a moment and consider what office you hold. What stewardship do you have? Uh, maybe you're an office manager. Maybe you're a teacher. Maybe you're uh, a, a parent. Do you use whatever office, whatever responsibility, whatever stewardship God has given you, both to oppose wrong but also to lift up those who are needy, those who are helpless, those who have been afflicted. Uh, do you look hard for such opportunities? Who in my classroom, who, who among my children, who, who, who among in this office is being left behind? A am I working to lift them up and oppose those things that would push others down? Is that what... Your rule, your leadership is like. It's certainly what Jesus' rule, Jesus' leadership is right is like. It is characteristic of him. I think depending on your political leanings, you might be more inclined to seeing justice as punishing rebellion, or if you're on the other side of the political spectrum, as as lifting those who have been who, who have who have been at been at the receiving end of injustice and lifting up. I, I tend, at least in America, for instance, the political parties emphasize one or the other, and I, I think that's true often. We, 
You tend to think of one or other. But friend, your politics, frankly, in one area of your life, should reflect both of these things, as it is with the king here. What does putting verses 5 to 7 into our hearts and mouths feel like? That brings us to our second point. Second point, anticipate and rejoice in God's endless reign. Anticipate and rejoice in God's endless reign, or the king, or I'm sorry, the king's endless reign. That's not elegant, but hopefully it's descriptive. We anticipate and rejoice in this king's endless reign. Look at verse 5. He will endure as long as the sun, as long as the moon, through all generations. And then verse 7. In his days the righteous will flourish. Prosperity, or, or peace in some translation, will abound till the moon is no more. Scientists say that the sun is expected to last for another 4.6 billion years. Supposing it does, listen to this. King Jesus will outlast it. Who do you think will be prime minister in 4.6 billion years? Who do you think will hold the White House in Washington? Jesus will be king in 4.6 billion years. His reign endures forever. Is that not mind-blowing? In the cultural controversies of the day, we, we often hear people talk about being on the right side of history. How can you make sure you're on the right side of history? Make sure you're on the side of the one who outlasts history. Will the opinions of your neighbors and your colleagues, will they outlast history? Of the sun... Hebrews says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Uh, Peter says the same. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. And so the Apostle John. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And he says elsewhere in the book of Revelation, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. That's Jesus' rule. You guys remember Hugo Chavez? The one-time dictator of Venezuela? According to, he died a few years ago. According to the Associated Press, the last words of Hugo Chavez were, I don't want to die. Please don't let me die. One more wannabe Yahweh. Chavez's reign has clearly passed. Jordan's reign has already passed. Michael Jordan is quoted in one of these same articles I read to you before from ESPN. He says, I would give up everything now to go back and play the game of basketball. When asked how he replaces basketball in his life, Jordan simply states, you don't. You learn to live with it. Jordan admits that basketball is his Refuge, the, quote, 
place where I've gone when I needed to find comfort and peace. And today he says there is only restlessness. How can I find peace away from the game of basketball? And how pathetic and feeble all of our attempts are at immortality on our own terms. Uh, Compare the effect of our rule to the effect of Jesus' rule. Uh, Verse 6. Look at verse 6. He will be like rain falling on a mown field, like showers watering the earth. Uh, Jesus' reign is like rain, like showers. Think about this for a moment in very literal terms. So you, you can see the gray sky, right? You, you can see the little globule of water, the little raindrop coming down. It, it hits the earth. It, 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 it goes into the dirt. It moistens the, the fibrous roots of, of that mown field. It, it um, uh, wets the, the stem and it grows into the leaf to the sheaf and and the blade, and and the grass grows up. It's green, and it's vibrant, alive. Jesus' rule is like that. It creates. It nourishes. It gives life. It gives vibrancy. It makes us greener. That's what Jesus' rule is like. It's like rain. It's like shower. He does not use it to enrich himself. Instead, he enriches others. Look at verse 7 again. In his days, the righteous will flourish. It's like a whole vibrant lawn of righteous people. The effect of his reign and rule. Now, I understand the idea of submitting our lives entirely to King Jesus, I admit, can be a little scary. What will I lose? What will I have to give up? But what we're told here is that his authority enlivens. It refreshes. It grows us. After all, he's the one who created us. And he knows exactly what we need. You might consider also how Jesus exercised his rule on earth most supremely, not by being served, he says, but by serving and giving his life as a ransom for many. King Jesus set his sights on our greatest of enemies, the guilt of sin, the consequence of sin, death. And to do that, Jesus, in fact, how did Jesus rule? Well, he, he had his servants place a, a purple robe on him, and he had them place a crown on his head and a sign over his head that said, this is the king. And then Jesus mounted this one-of-a-kind throne, and he was lifted up and exalted. And there, out of his rich, royal 
coffers, he paid the price for sin with his own death. And through the payment of his death, he purchased life. Life to all those who would get off their wannabe thrones, take off their wannabe crowns, and lay them at his feet, knowing that he is rich to forgive and pardon and love and embrace. The righteous anticipate and rejoice in this one's endless reign, where death itself has no power. The righteous also, here's the third point, anticipate and rejoice in his boundless realm. That's verses 8 to 11. The righteous also anticipate and rejoice in his boundless realm. Verse 8, he will rule from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Uh, Notice in this verse the expansiveness of Christ's rule from sea to sea. And then look at verse 9. Who are these obscure people out in the middle of the desert, out in the middle of nowhere? Well, I have no idea. But Jesus does because he rules there. Look at verse 10. Kings of Tarshish which is in the ancient years, probably would have referred to Spain and the edge of the known world. His rule extends even there. We read it extends to the battlefield where his enemies lick the dust. It extends to the court where other kings bring him tributes and gifts as the Queen of Sheba did with Solomon. Does this not remind you of Revelation 21? And the heavenly city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. That's Revelation. Look at verse 11 of our chapter. All kings, all nations will bow will serve. All kings, all nations will bow, will serve. Again, let's, let's, let's picture this literally. Uh, think of the present prime minister. Think of the last two prime ministers. Uh, think of as many prime ministers as you can think of. Uh, think of the U.S. president. I'm not going to name them. Think of the president before that, the president before that, as many presidents you can think of. Think of the British Prime Minister, Theresa May. Think of the Russian president, Vladimir Putin. Think of any heads of state that you can think of. Think of the kings you read about in history. Think of all of them coming up with shaking hands, with with these gifts, shaking hands before King Jesus putting these these gifts down before him. How will he respond? Will he crush them as oppressors? Or, Or will he lift them up as the righteous? Well, I suppose it depends. 
Uh, friend, you and I will be there too. Walking before him. Will he crush us as an oppressor or will he lift us up? Well, are you a wannabe Yahweh? The righteous anticipate and rejoice in the promise of this moment. They anticipate and rejoice in Christ's rule over everything and the whole of their lives. In fact, because the righteous know his rule already extends over everything and over all of their lives. The righteous know that Christ's rule extends into every cubicle in your office building, every room in your home. There is no place where the rule of Christ does not already extend, whether we can see it or not. And we know That's true, because it will be his justice and his righteousness which becomes the measurement of all activities in every cubicle and every bedroom and every room and every park and every playing field, every car of life. There is no area of life, there is no relationship where Jesus will not ultimately bring all things into submission. There is no vacation, no break, away from which Christ does not say, that's mine, I rule there. To my fellow wannabe Yahwehs, my fellow wannabe superheroes, my fellow wannabe beauty queens, do you see that if you have faith in Christ and you've, you've turned away from ruling yourself and put your trust in Him, this is cause for rejoicing. Because what does this rule bring? It brings life. Didn't we see that a few moments ago? His, his rule makes things flourish and grow strong. And the righteous rejoice in His rule over all things. In fact, we see that even more in the next point. We see that in verses 12 to 14. Trust his deliverance, pity, and redemption. That's our next point, summarizing verses 12 to 14. Trust his deliverance, pity, and redemption. Uh, Putting this psalm into our hearts and into our mouths mean we trust his deliverance his pity, and his redemption. Verse 12, For he will deliver the needy who cry out, the afflicted who have no one to help. He will take pity on the weak and the needy and save the needy from death. He will rescue, or maybe your translation has redeemed them from oppression and violence. For precious is their blood in his sight. Why is Jesus the one whose rule we pray for and rejoice in and trust in? Well, just look at the verbs of these these verses. Verse 12, he delivers. Verse 13, he has pity, he saves. Or verse 14, he redeems or rescues. His pity is not a detached, condescending 
emotion. It's a pity that values the life of the needy as his own life. Verse 14, for precious is their blood in his sight. Blood in Scripture is a symbol of life. And King Jesus looks down at the life of everyone who is needy and who, look at verse 12, cries out. And he responds by saying, you're precious to me. I will deliver you, even with my life. He says this to the afflicted. It's such a graphic word, isn't it? Afflicted. Afflicted. It makes me think of Job's boils and sores. He's afflicted with boils. Are you afflicted? Are you afflicted on the outside by a bad boss, by a harsh, unforgiving spouse, by discrimination, by sickness and a decaying body? Are you afflicted on the inside by temptation? by an addiction, by impatience or or a temper that you can't seem to conquer, by discouragement, despair, anxiety? Are you afflicted by cynicism and callousness? Well, for all such things, friends, where do you think rescue and deliverance will come from? Anna Karenina, I told you, could make any man fall in love with her. Yet as the novel carries on, drives on, she becomes obsessed with securing the love of the one man who she left her husband for. She left her husband for this one man, and and then she spends the whole novel trying to like get this one man's love. Uh, Tolstoy writes again, One thought and one only pursued her in different forms and refused to be shaken off. If I have so much effect on others, why is it he is so cold to me? And ultimately, if you read the novel, you'll see that she drives herself insane because in spite of all her beauty and charm and manipulation, she cannot permanently secure her lover's love. She couldn't save herself. So again, my my fellow wannabe Yahwehs, my fellow wannabe beauty queens, assert as much control, achieve as much success, win as many hearts as you want, and you cannot save yourself. You cannot uh, quiet the voice of ambition. You will not fill that need for affirmation and love. You will not make peace with the universe. You will not be reconciled to God. You will not save yourself from death and hell. It's tragic. We were made to submit our lives to this king and follow after him. And doing so is the source of all life and all joy and all love, and yet we resist him. Still, in his very goodness, he comes to us to rescue us, to rescue us eventually from the afflictions of this world, material poverty and death and sickness, to rescue us especially from our spiritual poverty. 
the poverty of our guilt and damnation, and he rescues us through his death and resurrection. What a different kind of king he is. It's no wonder that the psalmist responds as he does in verses 15 to 17, which brings us to our next point, verses 15 to 17. Desire the expansion of his glory and rule. Putting this psalm into our hearts means we desire the expansion of his glory and rule. Originally I wrote hope in his glory and rule, but I wanted to use an everyday word. We desire this. This is what I desire. Desire the expansion of his glory and rule. Verse 15, long may this one be king. Give him gold. I don't want to keep gold for myself. It's better used by him. And let's get people praying for him and affirming his name before the nations because of how good he is. It's, it's so easy these days to set our hopes on finding the next great leader or the next great boss or the next great set of circumstances. Even, even, even Christians do this. If we could just get our right man in the office... Now, there's, there's better men and there's worse men, better leaders and worse leaders, to be sure. But Psalm 72 says there's only one great man. His name is Jesus. I love, I love this, this merging of the natural order and the moral order in verse 16. Look there. Let grain abound throughout the land. On the tops of the hills may it sway. Let its fruit flourish like Lebanon. Let it thrive like the grass of the field. Um, Eugene, I think, told you that I have, I have four little girls between the ages of three and 11. That means I spend many... I've watched all the Disney movies, okay? This is what I'm trying to say. All the, especially all the princess movies. I've seen them all. I trust you've seen some of them, perhaps. Beauty and the Beast and Snow White and so forth. You guys seen those? Well, you know, you know how the end of those movies, when the evil witch's spell is broken, the the natural order is kind of restored to a thing of beauty. You know when that moment comes, like everything is dark and there's gargoyles on the castle and then, and then, and then they're released from the spell and those gargoyles become like monkeys or clowns and the sky is blue all of a sudden. It's kind of, it's kind of the broken spell moment in the movie. Well, what we have in verse 16 is kind of the Bible's broken spell moment, Right? Through this king's rule, grain abounds. Even the hilltops where the soil is thin, even there it's, it's good. Fruit flourishes in these places. So is, is the language here literal, right? Or is this figurative language? Well, it's sort of both. It, I mean, it's poetry, and so there's a, there's a figurative element in its original context. At the same time, the scripture promises a new heaven, a new earth, ushered in by Christ the King. And this psalm, in a dim, shadowy sort of way, points us to this moment. What, what, is, what does verse 17 of our psalm tell us? All nations will be blessed through him, and they, shall call, they will call him blessed. And, and verse 15, may people ever pray for him and bless him this 
This king is the new Adam. He is the new Abraham. It, it looks forward to Revelation. It looks back to the storyline of the whole Bible. Here's the new Adam. Here's, here's the new Abraham bringing blessing to the nations. He is, of course, the greater David. Here's the more perfect human. Here is the true humanity. And so we can't help but say, long may he live. May gold from Sheba be given him. Let grain abound throughout the land. May his name endure forever. Can there really be a king this good? It almost sounds like science fiction or a Disney movie. Uh, the irony is it, it leaves us as fallen sinners feeling kind of conflicted, doesn't it? Like, I, on the one hand, I want a king like this. On the other hand, I don't really want someone to think they're better than I am. After all, we are wannabe always, wannabe superheroes, wannabe beauty queens. But in fact, friends, the good news of this psalm is that there is a man, there is a king who is far better than you, far better than me. It is not science fiction or Disney. It is true. It's right here in this book. He will bring in history's broken spell moment. If you're here visiting this morning, I wonder if this sounds naive to you. I wonder if this sounds misguided. But I, I want you to know, friend, you were made to know this good king. And you were made to emulate and follow after this good king. The trouble is you and I both have not wanted to emulate and follow after anyone. The trouble is you and I both have wanted to be king, queen ourselves. And so we've cast off this king's rule, this God's rule. And the Bible calls this sin. But the king in this passage is your king. And he is mine. And the day will come, I promise you, the day will come when you and I both are standing before this king and he will either judge and crush us or he will redeem and lift us up. How can you be lifted up? Repent today. Turn today from your sin. Turn today from being a one be Yahweh and trust his son's own ransom on the cross. Paying the penalty for our rebellion, your rebellion, my rebellion, if we would only turn and believe. Uh, we who have experienced his rule have begun to know how good his rule live. And, and, and in our hearts we have begun to say, long may he live. Uh, we've begun to say, may gold be given to him. You, you saw that offering going on. Why, why were people in this room, if you're a visitor, why were people in this room giving money? May gold be given to him. His kingdom is forever and ever. And we're giving just a little piece of, the, of our own income because it's his to begin with to him for that work. And we know what blessings follow after him. Uh, do you know what this king actually did to accomplish history's broken spell moment? He lived a perfect life. And then he paid for the sin of his people, taking the punishment we deserve on himself on the cross precisely because he is just. Because God is good and just, he must punish sin. 
And because God is merciful, he punishes sin in order to rescue. He punishes it in his own person of his son. And he knows sin, yours and mine, must be cleared away, but that we can be forgiven. And so again, my friend who's visiting this morning who do not understand yourself to be a Christian, just ask yourself, is the rule that you've exercised in your life, the things that you've tried to accomplish, has it been this generous? Has it been this loving? Has it been this good? Turn from your own sin today and discover this blessing. Finally, point six. We praise God for his marvelous deeds. That's, that's verses 18 and 19. We praise God for his marvelous deeds. Look at verse 18. Praise or blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone does marvelous deeds. Look at that word alone. God alone does marvelous deeds. And so praise belongs to him. How good is the rule of this King Jesus? Well, I just... I spent some time just reflecting, what, what, what does the rule of God create? Well, the rule of God, first and foremost, created this earth and all the glory and the beauty of this earth in its, in its original form from, from, from the waving fields of grain that we, we read about here to the, to the color of flowers to the majesty of the animal kingdom to the smiles and giggles of my little girls to the uh, long conversation with a good friend to the trustworthiness of a righteous man to the love of a gracious woman. God and his rule creates all of that, and what else? Well, it creates redemption. It creates forgiveness for those who have turned away from him. It creates a lifting up of the downcast to the forgiveness of sinners. How beautiful is the rule of God. And put all this together, put all the colors and fragrances and the tastes and the joys of children and the friends and, 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 and married lovers and forgiving, forgiven sinners. And does not the creator of all such good things per, per, surpass them in goodness? If he has created all of this beauty, is he not that much more beautiful and glorious? We sang earlier, behold our God. Why do we sing that? Because his rule is good and glorious. Verse 19, praise be to this glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen, say the people. I began with Jordan. Let me conclude with two more athletes. These ones, British. Uh, many of, some of you, the, the older folk in the room, I suppose, um, might remember chariot, the movie Chariots of Fire and, and the famous runner Eric Liddell. Uh, there was two characters in that movie. One was his, his fellow friend and his friend and fellow competitor, Harold Abrams. Abrams was a, a sprinter, and at one point he says, Abrams says, I have only 10 lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. I have only 10 lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. You know, a 100-meter dash is about 10 seconds. He only has 10 seconds to justify his whole existence. It wasn't about running for Abrams. It was about his own glory. 
one more want to be Yahweh. Eric Liddell, on the other hand, famously said, I believe God made me for a purpose, but he also made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. So he took all that God had made him, all the beauty and glory that God had made him as a fast runner, and he used it for his own glory, for the glory of God. Well, he, he didn't go on to start a clothesline or do a partnership deal with Nike or open restaurants or own a professional basketball team. He didn't do any of that. He didn't, he didn't give his uh, employees nicknames. He didn't name himself Yahweh. What did he do? He crossed an ocean. He gave his life to God as a missionary in China. He was no wannabe Yahweh Instead, he lived his life to the fullest, but he did this for God's praise. He didn't spend the rest of his days trying to prove himself or justify his existence because he knew his God, and he was justified. He had nothing left to prove. Instead, he could give glory to God. He didn't pine continually to relive the glory days of his past. And here is a man who knew the king of Psalm 72 who was not afraid of any trials or opposition which might face him because he knew the one who would outlast history, whose reign is endless, whose realm is boundless. He will defend the afflicted. He will crush the needy. He will endure as long as the sun, as long as the moon. In his days the righteous will flourish. Long may he live. Is that the cry of our hearts this afternoon? Let's pray. Father God, how selfish, how stingy we are with our praise. Because we want it for ourselves, we confess. But in your mercy, you have begun to humble our hearts. And we say, see that you alone, in the person of your Son, are the glorious one who deserves all rule. And we pray, Lord, that we would submit ourselves to your rule and enjoy you in your glory and give you all praise. Help us to do that this afternoon and evening as we leave from here. Help us to do that this coming week. In Christ's name, amen. Let us rise to sing the song of response. <clears throat>